Lord God, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We thank you that you have brought us together this day. Lord, we pray now that you would be with us, that you would guide our thoughts and our words, that we would be ready to receive your word opened up to us. Please give us your spirit, Lord. We ask your blessings on this lesson. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay. Is anyone familiar with this book? Okay, Charity and Its Fruits, written by uh, Jonathan Edwards. This particular version is edited by Cal Strobel. So Charity and Its Fruits. Um, Joseph, do you want to tell us what it's about? Um, well, I read it a couple of years ago. It's really about God's love. Yes. And how God's love is like the most incredible thing there is. Yes. Charity and Its Fruits is actually a series of sermons on God's love, on 1 Corinthians 13. And right now we're, we're working through 1 Corinthians 13. And today we're going to be covering verse 4. Love is patient and love is kind. The first line there, that's the uh, reference for this particular book, this, this version of Charity and Its Fruits. Um, Jonathan Edwards' exposition of 1 Corinthians 13 is one of the greatest expositions of that chapter that, that I know of. Um, there is gold in this book. Um, I commend it to all of you. In this, this particular version, they've given you some um, help in trying to get through. Jonathan Edwards sometimes can be difficult to read, uh, but they try to guide, guide you through that. So what I was hoping to do in this lesson, my plan was basically I've uh, printed out his sermon on this uh, verse and um, along with the, uh, the guides from the book, and I just thought that we could go through it together. And I would like very much for it to be interactive. Um, it can be difficult, and I would like to just read it and um, interact with it. Any um, thoughts that each one of you may have, and, you know, open. I would like to hear that. Any questions or thoughts before we get started? Okay, so in Charity and Fruits, Jonathan Edwards defines charity as love. So if the title of the sermon series is Charity and Fruits, but it could be Love and His Fruits. It says, The Apostle in the previous verses, as we have seen, one through three, sets forth how great and essential a thing a charity or spirit of Christian love is in Christianity, that is far more necessary and excellent than any of the extraordinary gifts of the Spirit, that it far exceeds all external performances and sufferings. In short, that is the sum of all that is good, distinguishing and saving Christianity, the very life and soul of all religion, without which, though we give all our goods to feed the poor and our bodies to be burned, we are nothing. So what is he telling us about love? Remember Corinthians um, chapter 1, 13, verse 1? Basically, Paul was saying if that he could speak in the tongues of angels or of men, if he had not all knowledge, all mysteries, all understanding, uh, but had love, he would be nothing. He said that even if he gave away everything he owned and he gave his body to be burned, if he had done love, it would be for nothing. So he's really trying to emphasize um, what Edwards was saying is basically the sum of our religion, the soul of our religion is love. 1 Corinthians 4 8b says God is love. And so now he proceeds, Jonathan Edwards does, as his subject naturally leads him to show the excellent nature of charity or love by describing its several amiable and excellent fruits. This is what he does in the rest of the chapter. The fruits of love. What does it, what does it mean to, look, to love? What does it look like to love? In the text, that's our text today, two of these fruits are mentioned. Patience, which is long-suffering, 
and which has respect to the evil or injury received from others. And being kind, which has respect to the good done to others. So do we see the difference there, the contrast? What is suffering, long-suffering? Long it means what we receive from others. And then what is kind? It's what we're giving out to others. Okay. Here's doctrine. Dwelling for the present on the first of these points, I, which is Edwards, I would endeavor to show that charity or a truly Christian spirit will dispose us meekly to bear the evil that is received from others or the injuries that others may do to us. So what does that mean? Will dispose us meekly to bear the evil that is received from others. Dispose us means to incline us, right? To enable us to meekly bear the evil that is received from others or the injuries that others may do to us. So he's saying that love will enable us to endure. And then he goes to talk a little bit about meekness. Meekness is a great part of the Christian spirit. Christ in that earnest and touching call, an invitation of his that we have in the 11th chapter of Matthew, which he invites all that labor and are heavy learn to come to himself for rest, particularly mentions that we would have to come to learn of him, for he adds, what? I am meek and lowly in heart. And meekness, as it respects injuries from men, is called long-suffering. So we're talking about meekness, and when we receive injury from others, when we receive ill from others, evil, enduring that is long-suffering. And it's a fruit of the Christian spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering. And then again, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, Therefore, the prison of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation, whereat ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering. And then again, in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 13, Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, also do ye. So long-suffering is not an uncommon topic in the New Testament. Okay, so then Edwards then moves on to basically summarize this sermon. He's going to take it in three parts. First, he's going to take notice of somehow some of the various kinds of injuries that we may receive from others. So he's going to talk about some of those hurts or injuries that others can cause us. And then he's going to go on to show us what is meant by being meekly and bearing such injuries. What does that look like? And then he's going to talk about how that love, which is the sum of the Christian spirit, will dispose us to be able to do this, or incline us to be able to do this, empower us to be able to do this. So any, any thoughts or questions so far?
And uh, I mean, it seems a little counterintuitive, but I think that's also how we learn to love um, and learn an aspect of love is through those times of long suffering, uh, whether it's with a close friend or, you know, um, larger speaking groups of people, um, those sorts of things. Uh, it's hard. Absolutely. You know, so a lot of things in this chapter we're going to cover are going to be very difficult, right? Calling the, the call to love as Christ has loved us is um, an enormous task. And just getting a little bit more of what you're saying when Paul says be worthy, what is he hinting at there? And what does he, he bring us, brings out in other places in the New Testament? He's saying, in a sense, be who you are as a new creature in Christ. He's not saying... By doing this, you become the new creature in Christ. This is your new identity. This is who you are. So Edward says, I would briefly notice some of the various kinds of injuries that we may do or receive from others. So here's gonna, he's going to talk about some of the hurts that we experience. So we'll try to move to this section a little bit more quickly. Um, he says, some injuries, others... Some injure others in their states of unfairness and dishonesty in their dealings by being fraudulent and deceitful with them, or at least by leading them to act in, dark and, in the dark and taking advantage of their ignorance, or by oppressing them, taking advantage of the, their necessities, or by unfaithfulness towards them, not fulfilling their promises and engagements, and being slack and slighting in any business they are employed by their neighbors, aiming at nothing but just to meet the letter of the engagements and not being careful to improve their time to the utmost in accomplishing that which they are engaged to do, or by asking unreasonable prices for what they do, or by withholding what is due from our neighbors, unjustly neglecting to pay their debts, or unnecessarily putting their neighbors to trouble and difficulty to what is due from them. And besides these, there are many other methods in which men injure one another in their dealings, by an abundance of crooked and pervasive, perverse ways, in which they are far from doing to others as they would have them do to themselves, and will which they would provoke and irritate and injure one another. Some injure others in their good name by reproaching or speaking evil behind their backs. No injury is more common and no iniquity more frequent or base than this. Other ways of injury are abundant, but the amount of injury by evil speaking of this kind is beyond account. When he says evil speaking of this kind, he's referring to what? Yes. Yes, and specifically gossip and slander behind someone's back. Some injured others by making or spreading false reports about them and so cruelly slandering them. Others, without saying that which is directly false, greatly misrepresent things. Picturing out everything respecting their neighbors in the worst colors, exaggerating their faults, and setting them forth as far greater than they really are. And always speaking of them in an unfair and unjust manner. So what is he saying there? It's not always falsehoods, right? You can kind of misrepresent the truth in the way you're talking about someone. You can approach someone and always have the worst motives in mind that they may have, right? He says you can t talk about someone exaggerating their faults and really exa exaggerate how great those faults are. He says a great deal of injury is done among neighbors by this uncharitable judging one another and putting injuries injurious and evil constructions on one another's words and actions. Again, it's attributing the worst possible motivation to someone's words or actions. 
Persons may greatly injure others in their thoughts by unjustly entertaining mean thoughts or a low esteem of them. So we can injure others not just by words or actions, but by thoughts, right? We can carry thoughts about someone that aren't true or potentially evil, and that's not love. Some are deeply and continually, continuously injurious to others by the contempt they habitually have of them in their hearts and by their willingness to think the worst about them. And as the outflowing of the thoughts, a great deal is done to the injury of others by the words, for the tongue is but too ready to, to be the wicked instrument of expressing the evil thoughts and feelings of the soul. And hence the scriptures, as in Job 5.21, it is called a scourge, and it is compared in Psalm 140, verse 3, to the fangs of some very poisonous kinds of serpents, whose bite is supposed to cause death. It's a pretty graphic language on the damage the tongue can do. Yeah, and, it's, uh, <clears throat> and that correlates, some of you may have in your mind as well, uh, James 3, containing the tongue, uh, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. Uh, the tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body. And then in uh, verse 8 it says, But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Uh, sorry, I, yeah, it just also makes me think, as we were thinking about our words and our actions towards one another, like how great a forest is set ablaze, you know, me speaking, you know, if I speak ill about Harry or misrepresent something about him, that's a small spark. But then as I, you know, converse with others, that spark then becomes a fire, and then soon the whole forest whole body of Christ can very quickly be engulfed in flames um, because the stuff, I mean, we know catches on uh, gossip and slander. Uh, and so it's, yeah, it, it's hard, but uh, it does, it can set, set on fire a body of Christ too. In yes. Sense. So. yes. Thank you, Ben. I don't need to apologize. Before you came in, I think you missed it, but I was hoping this would be interactive, that we'd go through this together and share our thoughts on what we're reading. Sometimes men injure others in their treatment and actions toward them, and in the injurious deeds they do to them. If clothed with authority, they sometimes carry themselves very injuriously towards those over whom their authority extends, by behaving very assumingly and magisterially and tyrannically toward them. Some, so what is he talking about there? Basically, harsh leaders, right? People that have vested authority, taking advantage of that office. Likewise, some of those who are under authority carry themselves very injuriously towards those who are over them by denying them the respect and honor which are due their places and thus to, to themselves while they occupy them. So it's the opposite side, right? Those under authority also need to have respect for the office of authority. Some carry themselves very injuriously towards others by the exercise of a very selfish spirit, seeming to be all for themselves and apparently having no regard to the good or benefit of their neighbor but all their contrivance is only the better to, to better their own interests. So he's talking about the person there, it's all about themselves. This appears in their, in their air and talk and actions, and their greatly assuming behavior in general, all of which are such that those about them feel and justly feel that they are injured by them. You know, maybe the person you talk to, or maybe you've been the person where it's all about you. You're talking to someone and not really showing an interest in 
who they are and what they're experiencing. It's just all about you. Edward's discussion of authority, this is in the, in the box here, Edward's discussion of authority and those under authority has a broader meaning that we would normally assume than, than what we would normally assume. Edward's lived in a world defined by status. He himself was a member of a professional class that carried with it the expectation of respect. It is not surprising that all of our representations of Edward shown to be wearing a wig, a sign of class, status, and authority. Some carry themselves very injuriously by the exercise of very willful spirit. Being so desperately set on having their own way, they will, if possible, bend everything to their own will and never will alter their career nor yield to the wishes of others. They shut their eyes against the light or motives others may offer and have no regard to anyone's inclination but their own, being always perverse and willful and having their own way. Some carry themselves injuriously in the course they take in public affairs, acting not so much from a regard for the public good, as from the spirit of opposition to some party or some particular person, so that the party or person opposes injured, oftentimes is greatly provoked and exacerbated. So what is he saying here? That some people are so much about themselves, and whatever they do, everything is going to... They're dead set on getting their way. One way or the other, they're going to get their way. He says they bend everything to their own will and will never alter their career or, or course. I, I have a, uh, I have some, like, politicians, I think, sometimes, like, especially in this very hostile, you know, unbending culture of politics that there is right now, which I think reflects some of our culture. Um, you know, whether it's you know, Ukraine or border or whatever it is, just an inflexible, you know, this is my way or we're not going to do this. Um, so I think it's highlighted, like in politics, but we could obviously drill that down to our own hearts as well. Absolutely. Some injure others by the malicious and wicked spirit they cherish against them, whether with or without cause. Skipping down there to the bold, many injure others from a spirit of revenge, deliberately returning evil for evil, for real or imaginary injuries received from them. Some, as long as they live, will keep a grudge in their hearts against their neighbor, and whenever an opportunity offers, will act out an injury to him in the spirit of malice. That's okay, man. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking, again, partly uh, it's from uh, a book that I've been reading. I've been coupling it with this current cultural moment. Uh, this idea of uh, anger. Um, and yeah, it says, some injure others by the malicious and wicked spirit they cherish against them, whether with or without cause. Even if you have cause, you know, just yeah. those feelings be nurtured. Uh, but just this culture of like, anger, um, it's actually, I'd say, less anger and more revenge. Um, you could look at uh, Keller's book on forgiveness that, you know, we just cancel people or we ghost people um, instead of, that, that we don't like. And, um, again, I'm not trying to say anything about politics. I just think this person captured it very well 
Uh, so Trump recently said, I don't get angry, I get revenge. Which is really capturing this idea that I think uh, is in America. Uh, he's just capitalizing, I think, on what people feel. Um, and so I think it's hard for us in such a culture to, to have, you know, to think opposite of that, to not nurture um, those feelings. Uh, because love is patient, revenge is not, <laughs> and kindness is not revenge either. And so, um, just as we yeah, think through and are immersed in that type of culture. Right. Absolutely. And as we live, live, live our lives out, right? I'm sure there's, every person sitting in this room has had evil done to them in some fashion or form. Every person in this room, we've all felt the, the urge to hold a grudge against someone, to not let it go. It's just natural human tendency. And I think a good example of who we should follow with this is Joseph. Because in Genesis 37, his own brothers sell him into slavery. Right. You can't have more evil done to you than that, almost. And what is his response at the end? He cries and weeps when he's finally with them and says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Right. He didn't yeah. hold a grudge against him. Right. Yes, thank you for that example, Joseph. And we're going to get more to some more biblical examples, but that's an excellent one. So now, Edwards moves into the second main topic. He talked to, first he's kind of diagnosing the problem. These are the issues that, that people have. Now he's going to say, I would go on to show you what is meant by being meek, by meekly bearing such injuries, or how ought meekly to be born. And here I would show first the nature of the duty enjoined. And then why it is called long-suffering, or suffering long. So now he's going to, as he talked about the various injuries and how we can hurt each other, now he's going to start talking about how we can bear these injuries and how we can be long-suffering in dealing with these injuries. So he would say, I would show the nature of duty of meekly bearing the injuries we suffer from others. And first it implies that injuries offered should be borne without doing anything to revenge them. There are many ways in which men do that which is revengeful, not merely by acting or bringing some immediate suffering on the one that they may have injured them, but by anything, either in speech or behavior, which shows a bitterness of spirit against him for what he has done. So what's his, what's his first main point in being long-suffering? That we should not take what? Revenge, right? And he's saying revenge... <coughs> It's not just an action. Anything in speech or behavior which shows a bitterness against a bitterness of spirit against him for what he has done. He says, Thus, if after we are offended or injured, we speak reproachfully to our neighbor or to him to others with a design to lower or injure him, that we may, that we, we may gratify the bitter spirit we feel in our hearts for the injury that neighbor has done to us. This is revenge. So he's saying, if we have harm done to us, and then we're talking to someone else about that person that harmed us, if we do anything to lower that person, that is revenge. He therefore, that exercises a Christian long-suffering toward his neighbor, will bear the injuries received from him without revenging or retaliating, either by injurious deeds or bitter words. He will bear it without doing anything against his neighbor that shall manifest the spirit of resentment, without speaking to him or of him with revengeful words and without allowing a revengeful spirit in his heart or manifesting it in his behavior. He will receive with a, all, with a calm, undisturbed countenance and with a soul full of meekness, quietness, and goodness. This he will manifest in all his behavior to the one that has injured him, whether to his face 
or behind his back. Wow. Um, that's not easy, right? I mean, we, we've, we suffer serious harm, serious injury. To be able to endure it in a way that Edward describes here is only a gift of the Holy Spirit, right? I mean, we cannot on our own do this. Here, Kyle Strobel, our editor, says, Without stating so implicitly here, Edwards describes Jesus' long-suffering. Just like Christ, therefore we are called to bear not only with the Word, but with the Church as well. Neighbors for Edwards certainly included church-going people. In fact, they were probably assumed. Like Christ, we may be more injured by the Church than by the world. Edwards' response is to share the peace of Christ, to ground ourselves in God's judgment rather than others. So sometimes the worst hurt that we experience in life are by those that are closest to us, right? Oftentimes that's the case. And it's no different within the church. Hence it is that this virtue is recommended in the scriptures under the name of gentleness, or is always connected with it, as may be seen in James 3.17 and Galatians 5.22. In him that exercises the Christian spirit as he ought, there will be not a passionate, rash, or hasty expression or a bitter, exacerbated countenance, or an air of violence in the talk or behavior. But on the contrary, the countenance and words and demeanor will all manifest the savor of peaceableness and calmness and gentleness. Now here he talks, he says, but he may perhaps reprove his neighbor. What is he saying? He's not saying not to correct evil or wrong. Someone is speaking of falsehood. He's not saying you can't correct that. It's just the countenance, the demeanor that we have in, in addressing that. He's, he goes on to say, this may clearly be his duty. If there's a falsehood being said, it, it, sometimes it is our duty to, to correct that falsehood with truth. But if he does, if we take this correction, it will be without impoliteness and without that severity that can tend only to exacerbate. What does he mean to tend to only to exacerbate? If we're going to confront someone with truth, how should we do it? In love. In love. Very good. In love. We, don't, we want to go into that interaction not in a way that would provoke the interaction or provoke hostility, but a way that would bring peace. He said, though it may be with strength of reason and argument and with plain and decided decision, it will still be without angry reflections or contemptuous language. Bringing emotion into these situations is not a good idea, right? Some of the worst, some of my worst interactions have been when I've acted emotionally. Maybe you all can sometimes relate as well. He goes on to say that this person, he may show a disapproval of what has been done, but it will not be without the appearance of high resentment. But as reproving the offender for a sin against God, rather than as for the offense against himself, as lamenting his calamity more than resenting his injury, as seeking his good, not his hurt, and as one that more desires to deliver the offender out of the air in which he has fallen than to be even with him for the injury done to himself. So, this is very powerful here. What is he saying? He Absolutely. Because if they become right with God, then naturally that will flow to reconciliation if possible with the injury that was caused to yes. the person. But 
I'm only focused on the injury to me and not focused on them getting right with God. They might verbally say something that could reconcile, but I am failing them as a brother in Christ because they're not getting right with God. And that's my goal is to help them fix that injury with God and then everything else will eventually go from there. Right. That's excellent. Thank you. That's exactly right. And it also is like, I think in these moments, it's easy to forget our salvation because uh, we are injured uh, by others uh, or hurt. And those are real. Uh, and I'm not trying to minimize them by saying this, but like the injury, the reproach, the sin that we've done against God is significantly higher uh, and much greater. And uh, Christ bore our iniquities. Um, and so, but Christ was concerned, here getting that love, concerned uh, about repairing that relationship uh, in love so that we might be reestablished with him. So, um, but yeah, it's easy to forget like, our own, uh, what we've done against God in those right. moments. Um, so. That's a great point, then. And we have more to come on that. Edward's emphasis that when a person sins against you, it is more important to recognize his sin as against God. That is why the focus on lament rather than seeking restitution. We should be saddened that this person is not right with God. Edward's emphasis is always on one standing before God, whether one's own standing or others. Secondly, that injuries be born without with the continuance of love in the heart and without those inward emotions and passions that tend to interrupt or destroy it. He was talking about what is our heart attitude. It should be one of love. Injuries should be born where we are called to suffer them, not only without manifesting an evil or revengeful spirit in our words or actions, but also with such a spirit in the heart. So we may be disciplined enough to not act out against someone with our words or our actions, but we can still harbor resentment in our heart. And that is wrong. He says, not only a smooth external behavior should be continued, but also a sincere love with it. We should not cease to love our neighbor because he has injured us. Well, <laughs> we may pity, but not hate him for it. In other words, what is he saying? We can be sad if someone injures us, and it's not justified. But we cannot hate our neighbor. Even if they're wrong, we cannot hate our neighbor. The duty enjoined also implies, and that's going down to 98C, but before we get to that, let's see what uh, Strobel tells us. He says, we again turn to self-knowledge as the necessary corollary to knowledge of God. Self-knowledge is knowledge of the heart, of its inward motions and passions, not, only, not simply knowing our behavior. True religion is ever more a powerful thing, and the power of it appears in the first place in the inward exercises of the heart, where it is principal in its original seat of it, religion. So Strobel's just emphasizing what Edwards is emphasizing, that our heart is really what matters. We can condition ourselves and be disciplined enough to act a certain way, but our heart can still be resentful or corrupt. God looks at the heart. And then continually, continuing, thirdly, that injuries be born without or losing the quietness and repose of our own minds and hearts. They should not only be born without a rough behavior, but with a continuance of inward calmness and repose of the spirit. So what is he saying here? It's not just on the horizontal level that we interact with people that we're not harsh with them or not rough with them. 
in our own hearts, we need to try to remain calm. When the injuries we suffer are allowed to disturb our, our calmness of mind and put us into an excitement and tumult, then we cease to bear them in true spirit of long-suffering. If the injury is permitted to discompass and disquiet us, meaning if that we do have inner turmoil, and to break up our inward rest, we cannot enjoy ourselves and are not in the state to engage properly in our various duties, especially we are not in the state for religious duties, for prayer and meditation. In such a state of mind is the contrary to the spirit of long-suffering and meekly bearing injuries that is spoken of in the text. Christians ought to still to keep the calmness and serenity of their minds undisturbed with whatever injuries they may suffer. Their souls may be serene and unlike the unstable surface of the water, disturbed by every wind that blows. No matter what evils they may suffer or what injuries may be inflicted on them, they should still act on the principle of the words of the Savior to his disciples. In your patience, possess ye your souls. And Strobel tells us, Edward calls his readers to a quietness and repose of mind and to nurture an inward calmness. He goes on to mention prayer and meditation, both of which are hindered in those minds that are not re recollected around who they are in Christ. Quietness and calm are not solutions, but are fruits of souls who know themselves as Christ alone. So I'm glad he said that, because when you first read Edwards up above, you, you can read it in such a way that you're saying that if you do have inner tumult, inner, don't have inner peace, maybe you shouldn't be in, spend time in prayer and meditation. That's not really what Edwards is saying. He's saying that your prayer and meditation will be hindered if you have that um, inner turmoil. And one of the ways that we, if we do feel that, that we can uh, rectify it is by going to, to the Lord in prayer and meditation. Any other thoughts or questions before we move on? This section reminds me of how Paul in Philippians 4 calls us to be content. He said, in whatever circumstance he is in, he has learned to be content. Um, so if we're growing in contentment, even when people injure us, we should be content and at peace yes. because we know our satisfaction, our joys in Christ, right. not what people say about us. Right. Yep, absolutely. The duty we are speaking of also implies once more, fourthly, that in many cases when we are injured, we should be willing to suffer much in our interests and feelings for the sake of peace, rather than do what we have the opportunity and perhaps the right to do in defending ourselves. When we suffer injuries for others, the case is often that such a the Christian spirit, if we did but exercise it as we ought, would dispose, dispose us to forbear taking the advantage we may have to vindicate and right ourselves. So what is he saying here? Good. That's, that's, that's very well said. What is that? It's not, you're right, it's not justice. We, we may be do justice, but instead of justice, we extend what? Grace. That's what it means. Yeah, I think it's important to draw a distinction between justice and revenge uh, as well. Uh, revenge has a uh, malicious uh, and also a spirit of you're the final part of things, um, vindic 
Whereas justice, uh, I think, uh, in a lot of cases, uh, defending yourself and pursuing that in an earthly way is, is good, can be very good and helpful. Um, you know, think about cases of murder. Uh, it's good that someone goes to prison for a long time if they murder uh, someone else. So, yeah, I mean, I, we don't want to not seek justice, but even in seeking justice, what is our heart disposition? Uh, is it still grace and forgiveness? And because you can seek reconciliation uh, and a restored relationship, you know, even if someone is in prison, uh, you know, to think about it in those terms. So, uh, yeah. And I think in the context of the church, that this is a lot harder to do because it's it feels more right to pursue justice. Godly justice towards a non-believer, you know, you can do that and feel like, okay, cool, I'm doing the right thing, I'm showing the love and grace. But when it comes inside the church and somebody sins against you, and all you want is for yourself to be vindicated, and instead of viewing them as a lost sheep that needs to be brought back into the fold right. to get that restoration with God. Right. Yeah. Very good. Thank you. And moving on, he says, in many and probably in most cases, men ought to suffer long first in the spirit of long suffering and the charity of the text. And the case may be often such that they may be called to suffer considerably, as charity and prudence shall direct for the sake of peace and from a sincere Christian love to one another that injures them, rather than deliver themselves in a way that they may have the opportunity for. So Ed Edwards goes on to say, why is it called long-suffering or suffering long? And he says it seems to be so on two accounts. First, because we ought to meekly to bear not only a small injury, but also a good deal of injur injurious treatment from others. We should persevere and continue in a quiet frame without ceasing still to love our neighbor, not only when he injures us a little, but when he injures us much, and the injuries he does to us are great. And we should not only thus bear a few injuries, but a great many, and though our neighbor continues his injurious treatment to us for a long time. When it is said that charity suffers long, we cannot infer from this that we are to bear injuries meekly for a season, and that for that season we may cease to bear them. The meaning is not that we must indeed bear injuries for a long time, but may cease to bear them at last. But it is, we should meekly continue to bear them, though they are long continued, even to the end. The spirit of long-suffering should never cease. Wow, that's hard. Anyone feel challenged by that? This is why we need the Holy Spirit. Because humanly, this is, we cannot do this on our own, right? It's not, we're just not wired that way. And he says, and it's called long-suffering, because in some cases, we should be willing to suffer a great while in our interest before we improve opportunities of writing ourselves. Though we may defend ourselves at last, when we are driven, as it is, as it were, by necessity to it, yet we are not to do it out of revenge or to injure them that has injured us, but only for needful self-defense. Even this, and many times, is to be given up for peace, and out of a Christian spirit toward him that has injured us, unless we should do injury to him. And then his third main point, how that love or charity, which is the sum of the Christian spirit, Till dispose us meekly to bear such injuries, 
And this may be shown both in reference to love of God and love to our neighbors. And he says that love to God and the Lord Jesus Christ has a tendency to dispose us to this. He says, first, love of God disposes us to imitate him, and therefore disposes us to much long-suffering as he manifests. Long-suffering is often spoken of as one of the attributes of God. In Exodus 34, 6, it is said, And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord of God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, etc. And in Romans 2, 4, the apostle asked, Despises thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering? The long-suffering of God is very wonderfully manifest and is bearing innumerable injuries from men, and injuries that are very great and long-continued. If we consider the wickedness that there is in the world, and then consider how God continues the world in existence, and does not destroy it, but shows showers upon it innumerable mercies, the bounties of his daily providence and grace, causing his sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sending rain alike, rain alike on the just and unjust, and offering his spiritual blessings to all, we shall perceive how abundant his long-suffering is toward us. What is he saying there? One thing he's alluding to is common grace, right? God is not... There's no obligation on God's part to continue the world. If justice were to be served, um, we would all be lost. There's an aspect yeah, as well that um, the same I'm reading a book, and I would encourage you all to, I think it's very well written. Uh, it's a true story uh, of the last slave ship. Uh, so uh, Clotilda uh, was found in an Alabama swamp in 2018. Uh, and this author recounts uh, much of the story uh, of these African slaves that were brought over. Um, they were oppressed and essentially raided from their own home uh, and forced into slavery from there, brought to Mobile, uh, which they were under slavery for a number of years until emancipation. But uh, many of these slaves, like, just this idea of long suffering, suffering long, uh, they did uh, at the hands of uh, people who they didn't know, they had no idea where they were going. And actually, many of them, through the process, uh, came to know uh, the Lord, um, came to know the Christian faith. And this is where there's like a, a very integral con connection, I think, with this idea of forgiveness. Uh, learning forgiveness uh, because only only the Christian faith has the, the right uh, idea uh, that's applicable experientially with what we, we live out. Uh, and so suffering long draws us uh, closer to the truth. Uh, and if you're an unbeliever, in this case uh, it did. Uh, and even for us who are believers it draws us closer, I think, uh, to the heart of Christ. Absolutely. Strengthens our faith and our dependence upon him. So then Edwards goes to talk about the great and populous cities of the world. And he, he talks about how evil, there's so much evil in these, in these cities, but how God continues to allow them to continue to be in existence. He is long-suffering to the sinners that he spares, and to whom he offers his mercy, even while they're rebelling against him. As such were you and I, right? And he is long-suffering towards his own elect people, many of whom long lived in sin, and despise alike its goodness and wrath, 
and yet he bore long with them, even to the end, till they were brought to repentance and made through his grace vessels of mercy and glory. And this mercy he showed to them, even while they were still enemies and rebels, the Apostle Paul tells us, was the case with himself. And I thank Jesus Christ our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he accounted me faithful, putting me in the ministry, who was before a blasphemer, a persecutor, and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief. Strobel tells us, Edward grounds his love for neighbor and our love for God. Love for God is prior and more foundational because love of God through the Spirit is the source of all true love. Likewise, note Edward's appeal to God as an example of love. Edward grounds Paul's admonition to use in God's own relation to his creation. Now it is the nature of love, at least in reference to a superior, that it always inclines and disposes to imitation of him. So one of the aspects of being created in the image of God, or being a creature of God, is that we should what? Imitate God, right? The child's love to his father disposes him to imitate his father, and especially does the love of God's children dispose them to imitate their heavenly father. And as he is long-suffering, so they should be. Love to God will dispose us to express our gratitude for his long-suffering exercise toward us. Love not only disposes to imitate, but also works by gratitude. They that love God as they ought will have such a sense of his wonderful long-suffering toward them under many injuries that they have offered to him that it will seem to them but a small thing to bear with the injuries that have been offered to them by their fellow men. So whatever we think we may experience by others, and I don't want to, and it's real. I mean, I don't want to say that it's not real. It's evil. We all can experience evil and probably have experienced evil. But it's still one man against another. Our sin against God is much more profound and significant. And if he's, Edwards is saying, if God is long-suffering towards us, we need to, number one, imitate God and be long-suffering towards our fellow man. And second, live our lives out in gratitude for what God has done for us. He says, for if they should refuse to exercise long-suffering towards those who have injured them, they would, be, they would practically disapprove of God's long-suffering towards themselves. So we need to always recognize what God has done for us in Jesus Christ in our interactions with others. When we put into perspective how rebellious we were against God and how he showed his mercy to us and his grace and did not give us justice but gave us grace it would incline us towards much forbearance in our dealings with our fellow men. Edward says, for what we truly approve and delight in, referencing back to the grace of God, we shall not practically reject. And then the gratitude for God's long-suffering will also dispose us to obedience and to, in this particular, when he commands us to be long-suffering towards others. So Strobel tells us Edward's two emphasis here, gratitude and humility, again build upon the theme of knowledge of God and the knowledge of self. Ingratitude and pride, the opposite of humility, fail to grasp God's long-suffering and the greatness of one's sin. Any questions, thoughts?
And so again, thirdly, love to God tends to humility, which is one main root of a meek and long-suffering spirit. Love to God, as it exalts Him, tends to, to low thoughts and estimates of ourselves and leads to a deep sense of our own unworthiness and desert of ill, because he that loves God is sensible of the hatefulness and vileness of sin committed against the being that he loves. So this just goes on to emphasize we need to rightfully understand our position before God. Edward says, humility is always found connected with long-suffering. And again, he goes back to Ephesians 4.2, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. A humble spirit disinclines us to indulge resentment of injuries, for he that is little and unworthy in his own eyes will not think so much of an injury offered to him as that he has high thoughts of himself. It is pride or self-conceit that is very much the foundation of a high and bitter resentment and of an unforgiving and revengeful spirit. Love to God disposes men to have regard to the hand of God in the injuries they suffer, and not only to the hand of man, and meekly submit to his will therein. What does that mean? What is this speaking about here? That God is sovereign, and even over the injuries against us, that that's not outside of his will. Exactly. When we are injured and we are hurt, that's something that God has allowed to happen. Love to God disposes men to see his hand in everything, to own him as the governor of the world and the director of providence and to acknowledge his disposal in everything that takes place. And the fact that the hand of God is a great deal more concerned in all that happens to us than the treatment of men is should lead us in a great measure not to think of things as from men, but to have respect to them chiefly as from God, as ordered by his love and wisdom, even when their immediate source may be the malice or heedlessness of a fellow man. That's a powerful statement. Yeah, it reminds me of what Paul says in Romans 8, that we know all things work together exactly. for the good of those who love God. Yes. Not just the good things, but all things. Yes, very good, Joseph. And if we truly believe that, when we are injured, when we are truly hurt, we realize that God is somehow using this for what? Two things. What was that? Yes, very good. And if we indeed consider and feel that they are from the hand of God, then we shall dispose meekly to receive and quietly submit to them and to own that the greatest injuries received from men are justly and even kindly ordered of God. And so be far from any rough or tumult of mind on account of them. This goes back to speaking about that inner peace, which is hard to do when we're experiencing these things, but just knowing that we truly believe we're in the hands of God. And that he, he has, in Christ, um, our best interests in mind. He is using us. He's molding us. He's shaping us into something. And these evils that we encounter are but one way that he's making us more to the image of his son, conforming us to the image of his son. Here when you say that, I think of uh, how Christ behaved uh, in the last days of his life. You know, his whole life he knew what he was doing, what a surprise to him. Um, and yet, yet he still fulfilled everything written in Isaiah and other places about um, 
you know, um, drink, drinking the cup that was offered to him. And you, you can pray to the Lord if it's your will, you know, take it from me. But um, knowing that he would be betrayed, right. if, if Christ behaved the way, you know, we behaved, he would have been much more uh, short-tempered with his disciples. Yes. But he wasn't. He was long-suffering. Just take what you just said, plus that point at the top about grasping God's how God is so patient and kind, even though He knows how we're going to fail already, and it's it's so difficult to extend that same um, even a little bit of that same love and patience to one another. Yeah, that, that just kind of goes back to the point at the top there. But that, that's an excellent point, Johnny. I mean, when, when Christ, when he was being crucified, what, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Edward tells us, the more they love God, the less they set their hearts on worldly interests. This is on page nine. The, word, the less they set their heart on worldly interests, which are all that the, their enemies can touch. Men can inter, in, injure God's people only with respect to worldly good. That's what it means, again, to be in the hands of God. We are in his hands, ultimately in his hands. And if we had, if we lived for this world only, we would be with despair, right? But in Christ, we're going to be in heaven. When we die, we're going to be in paradise, just like Christ told the thief on the cross. Men can hurt us. They can hurt our bodies. They can even kill us. But they can't touch our souls, which will be with our Savior in paradise when we die. He says, but the more a man loves God, the less in his heart is set on things of the world, and the less he feels the injuries that his enemies may inflict, because they cannot reach beyond these things. And then just going back, just down to the box there, what Strobel says, suffering at the hands of others, even others in the church, should not simply be put up with. Ultimately, you must turn to the love of God, asking what God is for you in the midst of your suffering. Even if the other person is completely malicious, the primary question should not be, how can I win? But how can I live as a child of God in this? So, any other thoughts or questions? Well, we're we're out of time. Um, I, I encourage you to take and read through the rest of this chat, uh, the rest of this sermon. Uh, there's some really good points that we have not had the opportunity to get to. It's certainly challenging. We are completely dependent upon God's grace to live our lives out in this way. So any other thoughts or questions before we close? I think that um, the scriptures that you read on the very first page, um, when it talks about the fruits of the Spirit and um, you know being worthy of the calling to which we've been called, and it lists you know, long-suffering and meekness, so I just think it's comforting to know that even in those scriptures where the Lord is encouraging us to be like him, it's implying that long-suffering and meekness will be required. Yes. So he's already saying patience is going to be required of you when you're a follower of Christ. Right. Like that long-suffering, you're going to be, you're going to have to show that <laughs> as a follower of Christ. It's not an option. Yeah. It's not an option. 
Okay, well, let's close in prayer. Lord God, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we thank you for this time of teaching, this time of fellowship. We pray, Lord, that you would press these matters deeply within our hearts, that we would be able to set ourselves aside, that we would look to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We would look to the example of what he has done for us, and then may we further our depth of knowledge and love of you and extend that into our interactions with others. And may we truly love, and may we truly be long-suffering. Thank you for all that you have given us in your Son, Lord. Now we pray that you would prepare our hearts and our minds to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray in Christ's name, through the power of the Spirit. Amen.